Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op. You know, we have a right wonderful day this morning. And we had history made uh, a couple nights ago, the first female to be elected to and nominated for a Democratic or Republican nomination. So this morning, though, we're going to talk about affordable cooperative housing. In the Washington, D.C. area, in particular in Washington, D.C., and there's 119 that we know about, and we have Mrs. Ajawa Ifateo in the studio with us this morning to talk about it, and we're going to have Amanda Huron, who's on the line, to talk about this affordable housing co-ops. Good morning. Good morning, Bernie. How are you? I'm excellent. Amanda, how are you doing this morning? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for calling in. We're glad to have you on. Uh, Ajawa, can you tell us how you got involved in this affordable housing and in co-ops? Well, there's a lot. I was uh, a member of the Ella Jo Baker Intentional Community Co-op myself, um, but I have a background in organizing worker co-ops. And, um, and so City First Homes had a position open to try to get people interested in organizing a co-op housing federation. And so I applied and got involved in the work that way. What's a co-op housing federation? That is something that we want to build, a group or association of all the people who are in co-ops. Uh, all the co-ops would come together into an organization and do collective action to take care of their needs, whether it be through internal governance, uh, advocacy with D.C. government or other agencies, or uh, ways to build community and, in particular, help themselves to be financially stable. Okay, take care of their needs, maybe advocacy, build community. Education. Education and make sure they're financially stable. Yes. That's just 119. And Amanda, what, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor at the University of the District of Columbia and um, UDC. I've been there for four years. And I did my dissertation research on limited equity housing co-ops in D.C. Um, and so I was studying 10 co-ops. Two of them had converted to a condominium structure at the time I was studying them. But I was interested in, in looking at limited equity co-ops in the city and seeing what their, really what their experiences have been, what their challenges have been in terms of keeping themselves going sort of, and maintaining themselves in this collective ownership structure over the long term. So that's what I was studying when I was writing my dissertation. And I'm, and right now I'm working on a book, turning that dissertation into a book. So that's what I'm working on now. And I, I also live in a limited equity co-op myself. And I'm very, I'm very interested in this ownership structure as a way to provide long-term affordable housing for people 
and I'm, I'm very hopeful about it, actually. I think there's a lot of really good work that's been done in these co-ops over the years since they first really started getting started after 1980. And Amanda did a great article about the history of cooperatives in the city. And I think, you know, it's just it's a wonderful piece to show collective action uh, on the part of people who were facing a housing shortage, facing actual eviction from their apartment homes that they had lived in for decades when developers wanted to turn them into condos. And so they organized. And Amanda's article is just a wonderful piece about that history that I think that we all can learn from now, but especially people who are, in, who are living in co-ops right now and probably facing some similar kind of issues in terms of gentrification or just, you know, financially being able to keep the bills paid. I think you were saying you, if they're living in an apartment now and the owner, the landlord is selling it, they have the option, particularly in D.C., with TOPA, Tenant Opportunity Purchase Assistance, that they could buy that building and turn it into a co-op. Now, which one of you would define what a limited equity co-op is? I can do that. A limited equity co-op is a... Um, uh, a, a co-op housing in which the tenants do not earn a lot of uh, profit if they sell. Say, like, if you buy a house, you earn some equity equity in the house, and you you make money, you can sell it to make a lot of money. Well, in limited equity, it's basically a, an affordable housing situation. You earn a little bit of money from your investment, but not a lot. The whole idea is to provide housing that is affordable. And so you have the right to stay there as long as you're a member, but you don't earn a bunch of money. Like Watergate is a co-op, and so they could sell that. You know, if you own a unit there, you could sell that for a million or ten million, whatever it goes for the market rate. But this limited equity co-op doesn't allow you to make money. It just allows you to have affordable housing and, you know, make a little bit of money. Amanda, you want to add anything to that? No, I think Angela described it exactly right, yeah. And I think um, I think the key thing to remember about limited equity co-ops. I mean, there has been a lot of debate over the years in the in D.C. in the um, sort of affordable housing development community about whether these co-ops are a um, in fact a a good way to provide affordable housing for for people. And I think um, one of the, the the key point of contention has been that some folks in the nonprofit housing community think that. Really, if we're going to be working to provide affordable home ownership to people, which is what these co-ops are, then we have to allow the people who are those owners to um, to build wealth, to build equity. And as Ajua was just describing, in a limited equity co-op, you don't have the potential to build the same kind of wealth in your housing that you do have the potential for if you're just buying on the open market. But I think the key thing to remember is that most people who – you know, tenants who are buying the buildings and turning them into limited equity co-ops, they would never have the option of buying on the open market in this city. I mean, there is absolutely no way that they would be able to, you know, get a mortgage for a $400,000 condominium or a $800,000 house in this city. And so I don't think it's accurate to compare when we're looking at limited equity co-ops to compare them to market rate ownership. I think it's more accurate to compare them to people's prior rental conditions. And in my research, what I've seen is that you know, the housing conditions really improve once tenants get control of their space and once they become owners. And most tenants aren't, most of them are not thinking in terms of um, housing as an investment vehicle and making money off their housing. They're thinking in terms of 
having an affordable, stable place to live that they have control over and they don't have to fear being evicted from. So I just wanted to add that because I think it's important to think about, you know, what really the options are for low-income tenants. And market-rate ownership is just not an option in this city. You know, I heard, first heard about limited equity co-ops uh, 25 years ago when I started managing properties. That's what I do my full-time job is I manage housing, I manage apartment buildings, co-ops, and condominiums. And when I first heard about them, a gentleman was telling me about it, and he was Caucasian, and he told me about limited equity co-ops, and I just thought that was white folks trying to make it so black folks could not make any money. Because that's a formula, and it says, you know, you can only get 1.5% growth on your investment. Your investment may be the same as security deposit. And you can get one and a half, three percent, whatever that formula says, it limits the amount of equity you can get. But you know, over the years, what you just said, amount is what I found out. For those out there that want to know, you can take an, a, an apartment building, a fifty-unit apartment building. I live in a fifty-seven-unit co-op, but it's a market-rate co-op. So that fifty-seven-unit apartment building, I'm going to say fifty for a minute. It could be apartment building, which means that somebody owns it, and that somebody normally has money, has some sense of wealth. And then they rent out the apartments. There's no sense of creating community in most cases. There's no sense of creating financial wealth. Or you can then turn that apartment into a co-op. It could be market rate or limited equity. And in a limited equity and in a market rate, you have a chance of creating wealth. But you have say-so. You own it and control it. So you have say-so on the policies. And I've come to conclude a lot through this program and talking to people that I'd much rather see the person out there who perhaps has limited income in a limited equity co-op than an apartment building. One of the things they learn, and you were talking about some of this, they learn how to run a business Mm -hmm. if if they'll get involved. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think it's a huge learning um, opportunity to to be part of a co-op. Absolutely. And certainly you are, you're running a, a, a million multi-million dollar business. It's a way to practice democracy. We live in a de- so-called democracy, uh, but we the, the only time we get to quote-unquote practice it is when we vote. But in a co-op, <laughs> right. you live democracy every day because you're a member, and you d- make a decision about how the co-op is run, who gets to come in, how do you spend the money, what you're going to do as a community, and so you're practicing. If the co-op is functioning well, now some co-ops leave it up to the president to do everything. You know, that's called top-down leadership where the president makes the decision. But if the co-op is really functioning as a co-op, then the members decide, or the board, which represents the members, makes the decisions and not one person. And if you're living in a co-op where that's happening, you're actually putting yourself at risk. Because there have been some stories where developers have made deals with with the, with the president, and that president has convinced the membership to sell or go condo, or you know you know there's one story where one woman actually ended up homeless because she took some money for a co-op and um, you know convinced everybody to get out, and then the building is still not being developed it's on L Street. I think it's 1919 L Street, and people were out of their homes. So, you know, you're at risk when you don't get involved, but it is an opportunity to learn governance. Amanda, I, I, I've said on this program, what I found out in managing co-ops is that you have to have good governance first, and then you have to have good management. And the management shows up in a whole lot of different ways. It could be self-managed, or they could hire a third-party manager like us to manage it. 
But you have to have, and I define good as they have to have knowledge and integrity. And what Ajawa was just explaining is no integrity in it. Matter of fact, there's no integrity in it if you have the management company making the decisions. And that's what I first heard when I got here. A lot of complaints about the management company making all the decisions. Or if you have one person making all the decisions, there's no integrity in that co-op. But if you have integrity, they function and function extremely well. And, you know, we're going to take our first break, <laughs> and we'll be right back. Uh, we'll get to traffic, the news, and the weather, and then we'll be right back to talk more about limited equity co-ops. 1450 WOL. Information is power. That's WOL's motto, and that's why the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program, to give you information. But, you know, once you get the information, you have to put it into action. You have to do something with it in order to get the power out of it. You just can't get information and do nothing. That's the same as if you have knowledge and you don't use it, the same as not having the knowledge. So we're hoping that in this program you'll listen, and particularly today is listening about limited equity co-op so that you may want to start a co-op. You may be living in an apartment building. The landlord may want to sell it, and now you can go out and get help, and we'll talk about how you can get some of that help. But so far we have uh, Ajawa Ipateo's here in the in the uh, studio and Amanda Huron. Amanda, we talked about the research a little bit. Can you tell us uh, what you found with your research? By the way, where did you get your doctorate? Oh, okay. Well, I got my doctorate at the um, City University of New York Graduate Center. And what, would you, um, what, did you, what was your City. emphasis on? What, was it co-ops or business? And I, well, yeah, I was actually um, – my, my degree is in geography, um, but I'm specifically focused on urban geography, and I'm interested in how – really how uh, space is used in cities. and how space gets shaped by different forces. So looking at how the market shapes space and how um, people work to try to carve out spaces in cities that are less shaped by necessarily by the so-called free market um, and are spaces where people are, are trying to kind of create alternatives. And so um, that was my, my broad interest. And then I, I zeroed in on limited equity co-ops as an example of how people are trying to um, create their own spaces in cities and um, really to preserve affordability in the context of a city like ours that has for years undergone such uh, rapid gentrification. Okay. Um, I, I would have never so. thought geography. <laughs> I would have never thought that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Architecture, well, business. Right. <laughs> well, okay. geography sort of with an urban planning kind of uh, twist on it. I mean, that was that's also one of my interests is urban planning and how cities are, the degree to which cities are trying to can do things to support people's ability to create their own spaces like these co-ops. So in terms of the research, I spent uh, about three years working on this research project. And I, um, like I think I said earlier, I, I picked 10 co-ops, seven of which were still ongoing limited equity co-ops at the time that I was doing my research. And three of which had converted to other structures. So two had converted to market-rate condominium structures, and one had converted to a market-rate co-op structure. So it remained a co-op, but it it sort of lost its uh, affordability, its limited equity structure. And the way I did the research is a combination of things. I, um, I did a lot of research, archival research, so kind of to start off with looking at the history of these co-ops through newspaper reports, but really, more importantly, through the internal records of one organization in particular that helped a lot of co-ops in the city start. You want to um, say what organization it was? 
Yeah, and that was Washington Inner City Self Help. Wish, um, wish, yes, wish, yes, exactly, exactly, yes, wish. Paul, Um, Paul Battle. Yes, exactly, Paul Battle. Right, right, right. Um, So they they were one of of quite a number of organizations that assisted co-ops, but um, because I had access to their records, I was able to um, to look pretty closely at, at some of the history in terms of the from that archival perspective. But then most of the research really was, was um, came out of the interviews that I did with people. And so I interviewed 50 people. I conducted sort of really um, sort of long-form interviews with 50 people, who 10 of whom were people professionals who had helped co-op start. So they were tenant organizers and nonprofit developers and management company folks and lawyers. And then 40 people who were part of these co-ops. And, and I tried to talk to a range of folks. So I, you know, I would talk to board presidents, of course, but I also talked to other board members and other people who weren't on the board at all. And I think, you know, Angela's point about the co-op being a place to really learn how to do democracy is, I think, really critical. And so I wanted to talk to people who were not necessarily that involved in their co-op, you know, and um, to see what their perspective was on this form of housing. So I talked. To, I tried to talk to a range of people in the in the buildings, in the properties, and the properties themselves. I I really wanted to get a range of properties in terms of the number of units in each property, in terms of the kinds of people, the demographics of the people, in terms of race and income who made up the membership, um, their location in the city. I wanted to look, you know, at many different parts of the city and different kinds of neighborhoods where these co-ops were located. Um, and also I was interested in looking at a range of sort of age of the co-op. So the oldest one that I looked at had been founded in 1979, and the, the youngest one had been founded in 2004. So I wanted to see the you know, diversity in terms of that as well. I mean, how large is the co-op that you live in? The, the one that I live in um, is 24 units. Okay. But the one I live in was not part of my study. And Ajawa, so, the unit you were in? 15 okay. units. 15 units. Okay. The one I looked at was four units, actually, which is really small. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest one was 90. That was kind of the range of co-op size I was looking at. And then in terms of my research, I was really interested in a lot of things. You know, how was it that these co-ops could get started? What was the, um, you know, you mentioned um, TOPA. And, you know, that, of course, is the city law, the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act that um, has enabled these, you know, tenant associations to buy their buildings. So I was interested in tracking the history of how that law came to be. And that law really came to be because of tenant organizing. You know, there were tenants in the late 70s who were who were organizing because so much gentrification was going on in the mid and late 70s in D.C. I mean, it's a huge time for gentrification and displacement and and eviction. We didn't have any controls on eviction um, back then. You know, and it wasn't until the Home Rule government, you know, came in, we finally had an elected mayor and city council who took office in January of 1975, and they immediately started working on housing because gentrification was such a hot topic and eviction was such a hot topic at that time. So we had this law passed as part of a very progressive city council agenda in the late 70s. You know, but but due to strong tenant organizing, so I was interested in that history of how it was that we even got to the point where we had this law that gives tenants the opportunity to purchase, um, and then enables all these these co-ops to get started. 
So what were some of the things that you found? What were some of the conclusions? Yeah, well, well, one thing I found was, you know, why are these co-ops important, I think, was a question that I had. You know, what is it that people are getting out of this, um, out of living in these kinds of spaces? And, and there were four key things that came out of that, and this is really based on my interviews and what people told me. One was, of course, affordability. And one of the things that I found was that the monthly carrying charges or co-op fees that people pay to live in these co-ops, on average, was half of what HUD determines to be the fair market rent for um, for this for, for, the, for this city, and and that was actually um, interesting to see because a previous study of limited equity co-ops in DC had also shown that co-op carrying charges tend to be about half of the fair market rent in the city, and so that is a um, significant degree of affordability. So being able to see that and to um, to getting some of the financial information these co-ops and to see that was, I think, really useful. Did you find out um, why that was so much lower? Well, there were, um, you know, there's a number of reasons. That there's The co-ops all, you know, none of them could really get started in the first place unless they were able to get financial assistance from the city. And so, you know, they've all received uh, financial assistance in the form, typically in the form of a low-interest loan from the city. Um, which enables them to, to buy the building from their landlord. Because, of course, you know, tenants have the right to buy, but they still have to pay essentially what the landlord is asking for the building. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially a market rate price. So, you know, it's not insignificant at all. But so I think part of the reason they could keep those costs, those monthly carrying charges lower because they had this low interest loan. So the mortgage they're paying off was lower because of that low interest. Now, there is also an issue, though, with co-ops not raising their carrying fees when they should. So, you know, in some instances, yeah, maybe the co-op fees are low, but maybe they actually need to be a little higher in order to make sure the co-op is financially sustainable over the long haul. So that's, well, that's there, definitely... <clears throat> there was a study that uh, National Co-op Bank sponsored w- with a uh, limited equity co-op in Atlanta called Wildwood. And the two mm-hmm. main reasons that the uh, it was affordable was that the uh, residents started to say tenants. The residents took better care of the place, which means their maintenance fees were lower. Once they understood that they were owners and not just renters. And then the second one was there was no profit motive. So if you take out that 10% or 15% that the owner would normally get if it was an apartment building, and then they raise that every year, <clears throat> you get a huge gap in 10, 15, 20 years. So that that those were the two main reasons, but when we're going to come back and get some more of the what you found in your uh, in your study, and then we're going to talk about the need for this uh, federation, this co-op housing federation, what kinds of benefits could happen out of that. But we're going to take our second break, and uh, we'll get more news, weather, and traffic, and then we'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Fourteen fifty WOL. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks with Everything Cooperative. We're talking to you about limited equity cooperatives today, and. Um, Amanda Heron was telling us about uh, her research that she did for her um, dissertation for her doctorate 
And one of the findings that she had was the affordable, uh, the affordability of limited equity co-ops. They're about half of the fair market value for rents in, in D.C. And I was talking about Wildwood. They were um, 40% lower than the apartment building down the street. So what else did you find out? Yeah, well, um, another thing related to the affordability of the the monthly fees is also the buy-in, to buy into the co-op is, is also relatively low. It, and it ranges, um, but in many of these co-ops, buying into the co-op is, you know, essentially the equivalent of, you know, maybe two months, two or three months rent. So it's, um, you can buy in for a relatively low amount, too. Now, that's certainly not the case for all co-ops. For some of them, it might be $5,000 to buy in or even $10,000 to buy in. So for some of them, it's more significant um, cash that's required. But for most of them, it's, it's really um, a relatively low buy-in as well. That's good. Um, but the other the other main three, besides affordability, the other things that were really important were, one, um, control. So we talked about uh, people having control over their space is very important. You just mentioned that with the Wildwood study. You know, when, when people become owners, they have control over their space. And that is both control over the physical space so they can, um, you know, in many cases in D.C., tenants have reconfigured the interior of their apartment building to make the living space work better for themselves and their families. You know, they might have been in an apartment building of all one-bedroom units, raising their children in these smaller units, and then once they purchase, they might reconfigure the building to create, you know, fewer but larger units for themselves and their families. So having that kind of control over the space or even smaller items like, you know, they have control over um, how they want the uh, front yard of the building to look, how they want to do the renovations to their unit, um, lots of ways that people have control over the physical space and also the social space of the co-op. And this can get a little tricky, but co-ops, you know, part of a co-op is that the co-op board decides who gets to move in. And so you interview people to move in and you um, – you know, you really want to bring in people who understand what a co-op is and are interested in living in this kind of housing. Um, and so you have a lot more social control over a co-op. You know who's moving in than you do, certainly in a rental situation. Than any form. And, 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 and you, yeah. If you live in a single-family house, you have no say of who moves in or, right. or a condominium. That's, That's right. the exactly. only one. Exactly. Um, no, you're exactly right. Exactly right. So that can lead to a certain ex exclusivity, too, potentially. But... You know, I do think that's an, an important – that was something that people who I talked to really valued. They knew who their neighbors were. They had um, approved the people coming in. Um, and so that created – most people talked about how that created a much more peaceful living environment, one that was really felt more – felt safer um, and and more comfortable. And then the – so there was the control, physical and social control was important. And then uh, stability was really important, too. So just – Often it's just the sort of psychological stability that comes with knowing, okay, this is mine. I, you know, I have this. I'm going to be here for the long term. The building's not going to be sold out from under me. You know, I'm not going to somehow lose my housing, somehow be evicted. That kind of stability was really important to people. Um, and then the fourth thing that was important was community. And, of course, you can have community in rental buildings, of course. Um, but a lot of people did talk about how they hadn't really known their neighbors until they started the process of, trying to buy their building together. And people talked about really, spoke quite movingly about the communities that had been built in their co-ops as they went through this process of 
really getting to know each other through working together to, to buy the building and then working together to, to keep it going over the long haul. So, I mean, those four benefits, the affordability, the control, the stability, and the community were all um, of great value to the people I spoke with. Um, but then the other main finding, I would say, from the research was just really getting a good understanding of how much work these co-ops require to keep going over the long haul and the fact that that work is so gendered, so often so gendered. I mean, it's, most of the people who seem to be doing that kind of work um, in my research were women, and they were just putting huge amounts of time into these co-ops. And, you know, no one is getting paid to do that kind of work. It's all volunteer, and they do it because they feel like they need to to keep their housing for themselves and their children and their neighbors. So the work can be, unfortunately, the work is not spread evenly among everyone. I mean, it certainly, you know, some people take on more than others, and that's always a challenge. So really, I think it's important to really be pretty clear about the work that's required. Um, and so people know that that's part of the experience is, is taking care of it together. You know, but um, that can also be a very joyful experience working yes. together. That's, yeah, that's good, was, too. <laughs> I was going to say that. But if anybody out there mm -hmm. has a question or comment for either Ajawar, Amanda, or myself, please call in at 1-800-450-7876. That's 1-800-450-7876. Under the community of the Wildwood study, Amanda, they found that the limited equity co-op was more secure. There was less crime. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I found that interesting when I first read it, but then I went back to some of the meetings that I've been in at, in limited equity co-ops, and you're also right, there are more women than men. Uh, if you have a five-member board, there's normally like four women, if not five, and one man. Mm -hmm. um, and Dr. Jessica Gordon-Emhart, in her book, looking at uh, called Collective Carriage, one of her findings was that throughout the African-American experience of co-ops, which goes back to 1850, but it's mostly women carrying the load. And it is a heavy load. Yeah. It's a lot of work to be done. But when I've been in meetings, in board meetings, you would get the women said, you know, that's so-and-so's grandson that brings those uh, stolen cars and park them on a lot. And they tell the police because now they've got this social wealth. They know how to interact with government entities. Uh, and they don't find the police as a, a negative force necessarily, but a positive force. And they know people in there. Uh, or that's, you know, that's so-and-so's um, uh, boyfriend that is doing the drugs. And they get rid of them. And so you have a lot less crime. And so that security, which most women that I've ever met say, securities are important to them uh, to raise their family. So the limited equity co-op seems that any measure you want to talk about, you can create financial. Oh, that was the other thing. They found out on that down payment, if you will, that the mm -hmm. person got 7.1% return off of their investment. And they said that's higher than they would have gotten anywhere else. But just like what you were saying, they don't have vehicles to make those investments in most cases. Most people live in apartments in limited equity. They don't have a vehicle to invest in. So they were able to save. This is why I found out that limited equity co-ops were much better than the apartment building. And this guy that I had told, I thought he was just a white guy trying to make sure that blacks could not get money. That No, no, in fact, this is a great vehicle, better than any vehicle they possibly have to create financial wealth and social wealth, which is all of the things that you've been talking about. So I've really learned to love co-ops, and particularly limited equity co-ops. But there are some issues with them, and that integrity is a part of it. 
and we're going to talk about some other things. So what I would like to do is talk about what you guys are tr trying to do in this co-op housing federation and why you need that. And that's just, I think we'll get to some of the helping to solve some of the problems with limited equity co-ops, particularly when we talk about a four-unit one or even a 24. It's hard to hire me for a four-unit apartment building, right. whether it's an apartment building or a limited equity co-op, but definitely for an apartment building. Because it normally is going to be 10, 12% of the income to try to pay. And that doesn't really cover how much work that we end up doing. So let's talk about, Ajawa, why are you trying to create this? Well, I'm trying to create a, a federation of limited equity housing co-ops because it is a means to preserve, to make sure that we preserve this wealth that has been created in the District of Columbia. Housing is very expensive. I mean, the last time I looked, it was like $1,500 for a single-bedroom uh, apartment. It's probably more now. And so when you have uh, an ability to have housing that is much cheaper than that, it, it allows you to create wealth. When, when we first moved into Ella Jo Baker, I was paying something like $800 rent. And uh, when I moved one bedroom into, or two. Well, one bedroom. Okay. And when I moved into Ella Baker, my rent was five hundred and eighty-five dollars. And we talked about that. Everybody had oh, that. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Of I miss it. it was eight hundred before you moved in. Right in an apartment. An apartment. But the co-op uh, carrying charges was only five hundred and eighty-five dollars. Okay. And yeah. so we, everybody had a situation like that. And so one of the things we talked about is that. We would use that extra money to do something to develop ourselves, go back to school, start a business, you know, uh, buy some piece of equipment that would make your life better. And so, um, you know, we need to preserve that in D.C., that, uh, how, that kind of housing. You know, one of the things I found out, uh, Amanda and Ajawa, in that study uh, at Wildwood, they talk about a 7.1% increase. But they didn't talk about that opportunity for two to three hundred more dollars because they down the street, like you, you would have paid eight hundred dollars what you were paying. Well, when when they looked at the Wildwood, if they went down the street to apartment building, they would have paid two to three hundred dollars more for the same space. Right. Okay. And the and the other thing is, down when you when you do the apartment building, you cannot write off your interest, your percentage of your interest, and your percent of the property tax. But in a co-op, you could write that off. So. That 7.1% was much, much larger when you took those other two variables, which they did not do. So that's a tremendous way of making money in a limited equity co-op, creating financial wealth. If you would do what you said, take that difference and either use it to help yourself grow by getting education or something, or if you would stick it somewhere in a treasury bill or something and get 1%, 2 3% return off of that money and let it grow, which most people for, that are in that social economic category would never even think about doing because right. they have to spend it right. to raise their children and so forth. Exactly. Okay, so go. Okay. Keep going. So and, and so we need to preserve that for our our individual people who need affordable housing, and then as a, a group we need to preserve that that legacy of struggle and uh, at what Amanda called the commons, the Ooh. housing commons in D.C. and make it uh, stronger. One thing that co-ops will face is like 30 years down the road, if they, particularly if they haven't raised their carrying charges, they now have to um, refinance and refix up the, the, the buildings um, and do, do stuff that involves capital. And so a federation will help co-ops 
to to stay on top of that kind of stuff so that they don't find themselves in a situation where, oh, wow, we got to go condo now, we got to sell out or whatever. Or we have to make this great jump in um, our, our, our carrying charges. And, and, you know, as part of the work that we did with City First Homes, we did a survey, and we found that most people were concerned about finances as a reason to have a federation, you know, increasing property taxes, capital expenditures. You know, in D.C. government, there might be uh, situations where, say, lead paint has to be uh, taken away from the building, and that takes a lot of money. And so a federation would help co-ops get together to uh, stay on top of these kinds of things, raise funny, uh, funds, find information that would help them. Another uh, reason to have a, a co-op is to help with the internal dynamics. So one of the things is that, you know, you have to educate people about the value of co-ops. We are in an individualistic society, and we're taught to not care about other people. You know, let me, we got to stop to take our final break. We only have one more break and one more segment. The hour goes by real quick. I think I needed you ladies on for two hours. Okay. We have so much that I could talk about, let alone what you all are bringing to the conversation. So we're going to take our final break, and we'll be right back. If you want to call in, call in at 1 800 450 We'll come back and talk more about why the the need for this federation, this group of limited equity co-ops coming together. So it's a co-op among cooperatives coming together and helping each other. We'll be right back. 1450 WOL. You know, welcome back again. This is Vernon Oaks, Everything Co-op. We have Amanda Heron and Ajawa Ifateo on, and Ajawa is in the studio, and Amanda's on the phone with us today with great conversation about limited equity cooperatives and why they're so so good and the benefits of them. And we're talking about trying to get these limited equity cooperators to come together so that they can have more say and help each other. So you did a survey. How many people uh, responded to like your survey? Twenty-four people to respond. I think that's great. Yeah, it could have been better. You well, know, yeah. we had a problem, and we still have a problem reaching some of these 119 co-ops out here because the management companies won't pass the information on or won't give me contact information for the co-op presidents. And so I, I think that's kind of curious. So if you don't, if you haven't heard about this, call your management company and see if they pass the information. No, wait a minute. Let's don't do that. Let's don't do that. Mm-hmm. I, I know you say management companies. I think sometimes management companies get the bad rap because I'm a management company. If you send it to me, all of my people are going to get it, mm-hmm. and I'll help you go knock on doors to get that. But why don't you give your telephone number okay. and your and your email address so that if people would like to get a hold of you, they can come directly to you. Okay. My uh, email address is ajwa, A-J-O-W-A, at C as in city, F as in first, homes, H-O-M-E-S dot org. That's Ajwa, A-J-O-W-A, at cfhomes.org. Or you can call me at 202-538-0007. 202-538-0007. 
And so, yeah, we it, it, there, there's a need to get information out and, and, and to organize. When I was in Ella Jo Baker, the co-op led an effort to get other co-ops to go to City Hall to get an abatement on property taxes for co-ops in the city. The, the taxes are, raising, are rising so high, and it threatened a lot of co-ops. And so a federation could help with those kinds of things. Some co-ops are dealing with gentrification. Around. Well, let's take the taxes a minute, though. No. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a 16 unit senior citizen co-op that I manage. It's a limited equity co-op. Right now, a one-bedroom is going for three fifty, and a two-bedroom is four twenty-five. I believe. Right in Shaw, five blocks away from the convention center. So the gentrification that we've talked about has come, and to get a unit over there, a one-bedroom would probably cost you $1,500 today, if not $2,500 today. So the income is very low. So if the property taxes were go up based on the value of properties in that area, that whole $350 would go toward property taxes, and they couldn't afford to pay for fixing the line or the water or whatever else. So the city has a wonderful program that I hope all limited equity co-ops know about. So, And that is that the property taxes is based on the income stream, not on the market value of the property. So we have to fill out a form every year. It used to not be every year, but we have to fill out the form every year. And if you miss that filling that form out, you could end up losing your co-op because of property taxes. So I like that the city has the law, but uh, limited equity co-ops must know about that law and then have somebody, their management company, their treasurer, their secretary, or somebody in the committee to make sure that form is filled out. And also, you can get senior citizens, homestead discounts, and senior citizen and disability discounts. But that has to be filled out every year, too. Mm -hmm. It used to be it wasn't every year. You fill it out once, and then it stayed on. But you have to fill it out every year. And so just learning about things, even not only coming in together and forming to sort of solve things together, but just learning about what is and making sure that people are doing so that they can help preserve. Right. Tremendous reason to come together. Right. A federation would help you stay on top of those things. Mm-hmm. You know. And so another good, good reason for a federation is, you know, to, to have education that will help move the internal organization forward. There was a, a, a case in New York where um, a piece of property was really valuable, and if members had sold their units, they could have each made a million dollars themselves. Each? Each. I forget the name of the co-op. But because they understood the value of the co-op, they did not sell. They refused to sell. They kept their co-op because they understood you probably couldn't buy housing in New York for a million dollars. And so, you know, we have to educate people about those kinds of things, how to run a co-op, how to build community, a whole bunch of other things. And so, you know, there's groups out here that do education, uh, like the Potomac Association of Housing Cooperatives. They do that. And, but we want to expand that, we, you know, with the federation. We want to work with all those groups like Mikasa, Potomac Association. Um, and there might be a couple of other groups that, but I'm not sure of, to make sure that education is like something that everybody has, uh, can afford. Uh, come come and give education to members or allow them to bring in other people to uh, help with education and internal dynamics. That's very important. Well, and, Annie Hill is the president of Potomac Association Housing Co-op, and she's right here in the D.C. Yes. She lives in a limited equity co-op. But the Potomac is Virginia, Maryland, and D.C., and they come together and they do the training. They had a wonderful training session two months ago or so. 
in Virginia Beach. But it it seemed like they would be a great place that this could be a subset of Potomac because the Potomac fills into the National Association of Housing Co-ops for training and advocacy and the things that you're talking about you want to do for the limited equity co-ops. Potomac does it. They basically just do education. And I know Annie Hill, we, we talked and she said that they were getting involved into some government work, uh, particularly like FEMA would not, um, you know, fund the co-op. And so working on some of those kinds of things. But the way this federation is envisioned is to be much more expansive in its work, to really work on some financial issues, some government uh, work, to, to bump up the education, to uh, provide um, group purchasing, and even do, do other kinds of things. You know, like when I was in Ella Jo Baker, I had the fantasy of uh, starting a co-op uh, a landscaping uh, company so that, you know, uh, co-ops that need that could, you know, have a landscaping company or a security uh, component, a security worker co-op. Um, so you can do just a whole lot more we're talking about really creating what they would call a co-op economy or local economy where, uh, say, you go to a GLUT or a TPSS uh, because you understand that shopping there would help co-op members all over. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would bank at um, a credit union or, you know, get your electricity from a co-op. You know, just having a consciousness that you would help other people by purchasing from other co-ops you know, into cooperation. And so, you know, these are other reasons. Oh, and the building of the community is, like, really, really important and understanding the value of uh, social engagement and involvement. I'm, la- I'm smiling over out. here, uh, Ajawa, because I'm looking at the principles, and you've just talked about the fifth, sixth, and seventh principle. The fifth principle is education, training, and information. The sixth principle is cooperation among cooperatives. And the seventh principle is concern for community. Um, and we've already talked about the first one, volunteer and open membership. Democratic control is the second. Member economic participation, they put some money in. That Maybe that um, Amanda talked about two months or three months or 5000 or 10000 They put something in. But the other side of it, and I've had some co-ops that would do this, is if you had more money at the end of the year, you can pr- produce a dividend. I have one co-op. It was one month's carrying charge that they gave back to the members. Uh, member, you can, it works both ways. And then the autonomy and independence is the fourth. That's where you have to have the control, where you have to say, you know, Oaks Management is being purchased by its employees in a worker cooperative. We've been training for a year, and it's been phenomenal training. That's um, and w- I thought it was going to be three months. It may be another year. But oh, in in this process of learning, uh, and the hardest part is just like the, getting from a tenant mentality to an owner mentality is getting from an employee mentality to an owner mentality. And also for me, it is from I've been used now for 23 years of making a decision. And so now it's like, okay, we have to make the decision. Right. <laughs> totally, Everybody has to change their attitudes. But one of the things that I've been thinking about is, particularly those four units that Amanda talked about, um, how to get them quality management at a price that they could afford. And if you were able to do this, one idea I had was that there would be one monthly meeting for all of these co-ops, and they come in and they would share information, financial information, mm-hmm. and they would help. This co-op is doing extremely well. What are they doing that you're not doing, and yes. so they can learn from each other. I've found in teaching that this peer-to-peer training works extremely well. 
much better than a teacher telling, if you can get the student to tell the other student how it works, they learn it much better. So, and then also, if everybody can meet, then that's, I don't have to, if we had 50 of these co-ops, wouldn't have to have 50 meetings in a month, which really burns out a property manager, or everything is done computer now. So they can go online and look at their statements or they can go online and look at their individual ledgers or their statements. We could get this so that people are paying 3% as opposed to 5, 6, 7, 10%. If, if it's a four unit, they may have to pay 10% of what they bring in. That's too high. So, it's, yeah, it's all of this. How do you come together, work together to, to get good products and services at a lower price? And it might be that that four unit might self-manage, but even that's not a, a solution because that means that somebody has to really be responsible for doing the work. And so yeah. people could share, okay, we tried to self-manage and these are the problems that we ran into. Yeah. And, and no, this it, is what you have to do. I, and I would look for that four unit. We, maybe we'd only do the financials. Yeah. Pay the bills, do the fi- and they do the okay. maintenance. Wait, time is up, you ladies. Time is up. Wow, when are we coming back? <laughs> Soon, I hope. This is wonderful. I do hope so. This has been great. It's been great. Yeah, and if anybody wants to uh, get involved in helping to organize a federation, please call me at 202-538-0007 or email Ajawa, A-J-O-W-A, at cfhomes.org. You got the last word, Ajawa. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next Thursday and have a cooperative week. All right. Bye now. 1450 WOL.